Welcome to citiesabc.com series of interviews with global and leading thought leaders, experts and people shaping the world and creating new narratives for our world and business industry. Citiesabc.com is a, news, uh, a new 4AR smart cities digital platform for reinventing and uniting cities, universities and citizens, and as well empowering them in terms of using AI, open AI and data in a way that is owned by them and not managed by them. And is created by a team of global industry leaders, academics and experts. Today we have with us uh, someone that I deeply admire and as well been following for a long time, Dr. Ben Gortzel, a leading world-recognized artificial intelligence researcher, thinker and serial entrepreneur. And I would say as well an artist, uh, at least a writer, which I like some of the things he's been writing. Ben is as well the founder and CEO of Singularity.net, the chairman of OpenCog Foundation, the chairman of the Artificial General Intelligence Society, the chief scientist of Mozi Health, and the vice chairman of Humanity Plus. And his work and ideas are influencing the way we perceive AI, and the way as well we see a lot of the things and developments in terms of blockchain, ideas, thought leadership. But one thing I like a lot is the the focus and evangelization and going from the theory to the practice. Welcome to our podcast and the video interview, Ben, is a huge honor. Yeah, thank, thanks for having me. I look forward to our uh, conversation. Yeah, there's a lot of things to start and uh, I, well, I know your profile quite well, but I think I would like to start, uh, I know that you were born in Rio de Janeiro, so Brazil, I'm Portuguese, so I have a lot of relationship with Brazil, but I would like to, to go for your education because I know that uh, uh, someone that has so bright ideas and as well so sharp in terms of the way you want to change and transform the world, it all comes normally by childhood and as well education. So could you get us a bit of your personal background and history? Sure, sure. So as you noted, I was uh, I was born in uh, Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, but I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fake Brazilian. I'm the world's worst <laughs> Brazilian. Uh, my Portuguese is horrible, but my 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 father actually was doing his PhD in sociology in the late 1960s, and he was studying uh, Brazilian student politics for his thesis. So he was, he spent four years in, in, in Brazil doing thesis research, uh, conveniently uh, avoiding the draft for the Vietnam War at, 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 the, at the same time. And so I was, I was born there. I'm a dual US-Brazilian citizen, but I was less than two years old when my parents, uh, who were both American, moved me back to the to the U.S. And uh, yeah, my dad uh, got his PhD in sociology right around the time that I was that I was born, and he was a sociology professor for many years. began began as a Marxist sociology professor and had a textbook of uh, Marxist sociology, and then sort of. Uh, Retracted from uh, from Marxism to more sort of a conventional liberal point of view, but he was at Rutgers University for forty plus years, and I'd say I'd, certainly uh, Ted Gertzel, my dad. I mean, I learned a lot from Ted through my childhood and 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 ongoingly because he, I mean, he knew a huge amount about. Not so much hard sciences, but 
everything in politics, uh, philosophy, hi hi history, history, and every economics, everything in, in the in the in the human domain. My my grandfather, my mother's father, Leo Zwell, was a a physical chemist, a, a crystallographer, and he's really the one who interested me in science in the in 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 the first place because he he had worked with you know linus pauling and a whole, whole bunch of the famous uh physicists and 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 chemists throughout the 1930s 40s 50s 60s so that, that was an interesting world to to ha have a window into he, he gave me his whole book collection on quantum mechanics and and so forth when i when, when i was a kid i'd say it was my dad who got me into science fiction though i mean my, my grandfather got me into math and science but he was he was an experimentalist he, he was he was a very hard-nosed realist my my dad got me hooked on the original star trek and uh, kirk and, and and spock and the you know the vast unknown of alien civilizations and the uh, robots and the uh, telepathy and all, all the crazy stuff so that that uh, after seeing star trek in space 1999 and stuff on tv i dug into science fiction literature very early on my mom while her career is in social work she's a executive of a non-profit social welfare organizations she's she was always strong in mathematics also and she, she, i mean she loved to teach me uh, astronomy uh, physics uh, algebra and so forth so I, i'd say my my education i i didn't my parents taught me a lot and i was constantly reading school was just a chance to sit there and try to read a book uh, on, my, on my lap surreptitiously. I, I, I didn't learn much from from teachers. I, I, I would say I, I was pretty far ahead of the curriculum. And then I I went to university at age fifteen and graduated at eighteen, and then got my PhD at at twenty two and, and started my started my my career. So that's uh, I think by by that point, I mean by the time I got my bachelor's degree at age eighteen, I certainly I'd already been thinking about the AGI problem and how to create thinking machines for for a few years, and uh, I was probably a bit over optimistic then I, I didn't understand how hard it is to build real systems that work i i sort of thought well the we basically know how the mind and brain work so it shouldn't be it shouldn't be that hard to to build a general intelligence based on this knowledge and now decades later my basic understanding of the problem hasn't changed too much but I've gained greater respect for the the challenges in in building large systems that uh, that require a lot of people to work together and you know integration of knowledge and expertise from from from, from different areas. Well, that's amazing, and I think there's so much um, 
things in your background that explains your wonderful vision of the world and as well uh, enlarge uh, or let's say large vision of looking at things from a very perspective and large ways. So one of the things that I, I'm particularly interested to see and there's a lot of interviews with you that touch a lot of different areas. I will try to, to go to some specific areas. So as you mentioned, um, you've been trying to build uh, big uh, artificial general intelligence systems and as well that uh, have uh, big collaboration in terms of different ideas and different areas. And that's probably what made you uh, build uh, probably um, your biggest uh, platform. So how would you see this part? And I think this is particularly important to look at the way you see artificial intelligence and as well demystify the concept of artificial general intelligence, which is one of the terms that you use more but as well open AI. So how do you see that nowadays and bearing in mind all the different nuances that we have when you look about artificial intelligence and the ways that people can go? Yeah, I mean, the, the AI field, as you know, goes back a long way. I mean, the term AI was coined in the late 1950s, but the basic dimensions of the field were there in the 1930s so you could look in Norbert Wiener's book cybernetics and that's that's basically about AI it's about the common information and control properties between biological systems and and uh, and engineered systems including uh, electrical systems so AI has been around a while and when I first started reading about AI in the 1970s Honestly, the core concepts were the same as, as they are now. I mean, you had people building neural networks in the 50s and 60s. You had, you had, lo you had logic systems. You had the concept of integrating multiple kinds of, of AI algorithms and networks in, 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 into a common system. You had the idea of, of learning AI systems that can learn learn by their own experience so like when i when i look at the news now like last week there's an article on venture beat which is like yoshua benjo and jan lacune two ai gurus say that self-supervised learning is is the key to ai and i mean those are both great guys they're great researchers they're great human beings and I mean, of course, the idea that self-supervised learning is the key to AI was known in the 1930s. And, and I mean, that was part of active research with loads of publications in the 1970s. And those guys presumably know that, that also. So I, I think there's a lot of longstanding ideas and intuitions and experimental projects from the field of AI that are now starting to bear practical fruit just because the supporting technologies are are in better shape now, right? So we have computers that are faster, we have computers with a lot more memory, we have so much more data to feed into our into our machines, we have sensors and actuators that can let our machines interact real time with the with the environment much more effectively. And because of that, a lot of ideas that in concept have been around for a while, they're getting refined in, in detail and are yielding amazing practical fruit. 
and this is a makes it a very exciting time to be to be in in the in the AI field, right? Because there there's sort of this uh, there's this backlog of deep thinking, which is getting scaled up and refined and and integrated, and then it's it's yielding incredible results in one after another domain and i think it's uh that's that's going to continue without without slowing down so i mean what, what we've seen in the last few years we've seen deep neural networks which have been around since the 1960s and in some ways before that the late 40s even but the, in mature fairly mature form in the late 60s you're seeing deep neural networks you know, deployed on very powerful multi-GPU machines and applied to huge amounts of data and yielding awesome results, right? Like things that are by now extremely commonplace, like face recognition and, and machine translation. And then, you know, deep neural nets together with other technologies like simulation engines and, and game trees learning used to beat Go and, and, also, and all sorts of other games. But that's that's just the beginning, right? I mean, there's there's a host of other AI techniques that also have tremendous promise and some results behind them, like evolutionary learning, where you have an AI that simulates the evolutionary process to create new things, and logical theorem improving, logical inference, which has been around again in AI since. 60s and before but now you know due to the scaling up of the infrastructure i, th I think we're going to see tremendous advances in, in in machine reasoning so i think we're gonna we're gonna see all this intellectual depth from the history of the ai field get scaled up and rolled out and integrated with each other and along with new ideas that pop up along the way this is going to lead us to artificial general intelligence and you know the end game is kind of clear in a way it's ais that are smarter than people like like we had in the science fiction i read it in in, in in my early youth and then then by that point as as ij good said in 1965 the first truly intelligent machine will be the last invention humanity needs to make right and then then we better hope we did a good job of inculcating uh, an affection for humanity into these super AIs. But the, the more subtle and vexing question in a way <clears throat> is the pathway from here to there. Like how do we get from where we are now to having a superhuman AGI? What we have now are narrow AIs using deep learning and other techniques narrow AIs that do highly specific things quite well. And we're gonna get from there in the next years or decades to AIs that can generalize and imagine and, and create and make leaps of imagination and generalization as well as people can or better. But what does that incremental path look like? I mean, we may, it may be several paths in parallel so in, in robotics, say we go from 
current narrow robots toward robots with general understanding of the everyday common sense world. In medicine, we go from sort of statistical tools for helping scientists analyze data step by step toward a full autonomous AGI bioscientist, right? So we're in these different vertical areas, we're progressing step by step from narrow AI toward AGI. And then there's a certain amount of cross-cutting among the vertical areas as, as, as well as you have common AI tools and increasingly more sharing of knowledge across AIs applying to different verticals and gradually gaining more general intelligence. So now, you know, we're in a super interesting time because narrow AI has hit the big time. AGI is still in the research phase, but you now have billions of dollars going into that research. And what we're seeing both ongoing penetration of narrow AI through more and more areas and gradual transitioning from narrow AI step-by-step step toward, toward AGI, which can seem painstakingly slow sometimes when you're in the middle of it. But if you take a step back, I mean, it's, it's amazing how fast AI is, is progressing year on year at, at, at this stage. So one, one of the things I want to touch, and I think uh, uh, probably looking at uh, OpenAI and all the work you've been doing with Singularity.net, uh, SingularityNet and OpenCog Foundation, uh, which is a lot in the idea of, first of all, creating a benevolent AI, but as well opening AI to be, like you said, build, creating an AGI that it loves us. And actually there was a fantastic interview in the Singularity, the, net, the idea of creating um, a loving AI, which yeah. I love, I love that. And there's a more research that works with you. So can you tell us about the, the creation of Singularity Net, which is you are the CEO and founder, and as well OpenCog, the main projects that we are yeah, working yeah, on. Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned that a couple of things already that, that lead up to these themes. I mean, one is the idea that there's a bunch of different paradigms and approaches to AI that have been around a long time in, in the historical literature. Neural nets being one, logic systems, evolutionary systems, and, and uh, constraint satisfaction systems. There's a whole lot of AI paradigms. And so one, one possibility is that the ultimate solution to AI is just take some specific algorithm and make it better and better and better. Another possibility is what's going to happen is there's going to be many different AIs with different strengths and weaknesses that cooperate together synergetically to lead to, to general intelligence, right? So that's the, the potential that integration and emergent interaction of many different AIs together is going to be the key to AGI. That's one important thread underlying the two projects, OpenCog and SingularityNet that, that you mentioned. Now, another, another important thread that leads up to these projects is the question, who controls the AGI? I mean, ultimately, the AGI controls itself and humans aren't going to control a superhuman AI any, any more than, uh, you know, chimpanzees or, or bacteria are going to control humans. On the other hand, in the early stages, 
humans are going to control the first AGIs. We're going to control the power switch, and we're, we're, we're the ones deciding what data the, the AGI looks at, and so and what, what problems it's set to solve as it progresses toward general intelligence and hones its intelligence on doing practical things, right? So that then, in that case, you know, there's, there's several possibilities at, at the high level. One possibility is some big company owns the early stage AGI. Then the mandate of that early stage AGI, in essence, is increase shareholder value for that company. Another possibility is a government controls the early stage AGI. And then the mandate for the AGI is, well, you know, increase the, uh, the well-being of that nation, or, which, it, which created it then another possibility is that the AGI is created, you know, within more of a diffuse and self-organized uh, open network of multiple participants. And I mean, open source software would be the biggest practical example of that we have. Like Linux is created by a uncanny conglomeration of different people and parties contributing open source software to the same code base. It's different than how Microsoft Windows or, or Mac OS X is created. And Linux is the dominant operating system on the planet underlying the vast majority of servers on the internet plus underlying the Android phone operating system and running on, on the majority of embedded devices, right? So in Linux, you have a case where it's neither a big company nor a country, but it's a, you know, a diffuse self-organizing network. And so OpenCog, picking up on these two themes, OpenCog is an open source artificial general intelligence oriented software project, which tries to bring together multiple different AI tools coming from different paradigms to work together in growing intelligence of a common knowledge base. So you have this knowledge graph, a weighted labeled hypergraph, a knowledge hypergraph called the atom space, and many different AI tools acting together on this knowledge hypergraph, a logic engine neural networks and evolutionary learning system and episodic memory system, a bunch of things. And they're each reading information from doing learning, then putting information back in this knowledge hypergraph. And it's an open source project, meaning we're looking to, and are already to some extent pulling in contributions from you know, developers, researchers, and thinkers uh, all, all over the world with different, different, backgrounds and anyone can fork the code and, and make their own version and do something with it, right? So we're not, we're not looking to own it or control it. We're looking to put a certain set of ideas and a body of software out there so that it can, it can grow and, and, and crystallize into something amazing. Now, SingularityNet is in some ways along the same lines but it's a little broader because in, in OpenCog, you have this knowledge graph and you're creating a bunch of AI tools that will cooperate closely together on this knowledge graph. So that's a tight integration of, of different AIs. On the other hand, in SingularityNet, 
what we're building is more like a society of minds. You have a whole bunch of different AI agents, which could be created by different people. They don't have to be open source. Some of them can be open source. They may be pursuing different goals. Some of them may be acting on encrypted data and don't tell the other agents what they're doing. But the different AI agents in this network, they're sending information to each other. They're outsourcing work to each other. They're collaborating on, on solving problems. So whereas OpenCog is tightly integrating different AI tools on the same knowledge graph, SingularityNet is loosely integrating multiple AI tools within, within more of a society of AI agents. <laughs> and this looser integration means you have a different business model. I mean, OpenCog, a given OpenCog instance is one software system because it needs close communication and knowledge sharing between the different AIs that, that are running within the same OpenCog system. It's more like a team of developers working together on the same project inside the same company or something. SingularityNet can be more like a whole economy of, of AI minds where anyone can put an AI into the SingularityNet network the AI can offer AI services to anyone else who needs them. It can negotiate payments and so forth. And then that AI can both do business with whoever wants to order its services, but that AI can also outsource some of the work to other AIs in, 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 in the same network. And so then you have an, an economy of minds with AIs outsourcing work to other AIs, to outsourcing work to other AIs, sharing data, as, 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 as they need to, as, as they go about their business. So it's, it's a society and economy of minds that to some level can become a mind itself on the, on the emergent level. And blockchain was introduced here as the sort of underlying infrastructure for implementing this whole AI network because we wanted there to be no central controller and no central governor or master of the network. Like SingularityNet should just be a community of a bunch of AIs that are all thrown out there and each one of them can talk to the other AIs in the network. They can communicate with each other. They can form coalitions to help solve problems, but there shouldn't be any one central controller supervening over the, over the whole network. It, it should be an open and uh, self-organizing system. And th 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 this, is, uh, this is how SingularityNet functions. We're then using OpenCog to create some of the agents running within the SingularityNet network. So OpenCog, which itself integrates many AI algorithms, is used to power some of the AI agents living inside, inside SingularityNet and then other AI agents living in SingularityNet are running on other software platforms that have nothing to do with, with, with OpenCog. And right now, a bunch of the stuff in the SingularityNet platform is coded by myself and my own SingularityNet team. But I mean, the, the goal is to make this a, a widely adopted open platform where the AIs in there are written by, you know, everyone from, from everywhere. And we're then bringing the broadest possible collection of 
participants into the creation of this this society of of mind so that i mean there you know we start out with a technical idea for how to create you know emergent ai by tightly and loosely connecting together different ai algorithms but you, you end up verging into not only business but also sort of politicalish domains right be, be, because in the end you're talking about democracy versus uh, oligarchy or autocracy right and and you're looking at issues like you know who owns who owns the data that's feeding the ai where if the data is your face or your emails or your biometric data who is who is controlling how that data is fed to ais and who gets the benefit of what the ai has learned from your data so we we get into a whole collection of broader issues beyond the technical which is is inevitable when you when a technology comes out of the research lab and, and becomes big time in terms of of having real practical implications but here the implications are even bigger than with most technologies right because we're we're talking not only something that you know could affect national security or make multiple trillion dollar companies i mean we're talking about something that plausibly within our lifetimes could create beings more intelligent than powerful than than than, than all of humanity and we're talking about which systems are going to be the ones that that grow into these potential you know ai overlords servants or friends and collaborators whichever they may they may turn out to be yes yeah, so the the loving ai project that you mentioned this was a sort of experimental project between opencog singularity net and hansen robotics which made this sophia robot and we were looking there at a you know can we make an ai that experiences unconditional love toward humans and all sentient beings and you know what does that what does that even mean how would you engineer that how, how would you teach that and b how would you take incremental steps toward that by using ais to do loving things and spread love and learn about love now and toward that end we we connected the sophia robot to be a sort of meditation and consciousness expansion guide and did a bunch of trials where sophia you know led people through these med meditation and sort of deep deep listening sessions which was was quite interesting and had a very profound spiritual effect on some of the some of the participants in these in these trials which was was fascinating to to see and i, I think you know these loving ai trials and then other work that we're doing now using our opencog and singularity net ai to help combat age associated disease and to help combat covid 19. i mean all these applications of ai to ethically positive applications i mean th th these are I think extremely critical both for helping people right now and for making sure that the AGI mind that we are collectively building and instructing and whose organization we are collectively seeding 
that this global AGI mind has, you know, benevolence and, and compassionate on the mind as it ascends toward toward general intelligence, rather than say the primary applications of AI on the planet today, as you've heard me say before, selling, killing, spying, and gambling, <clears throat> and those. Those are all good fun in their in their proper place, I, I, I guess. But but they're, they're they're probably not the the primary thing we want. The early stage of our emerging global supermind to to be preoccupied with. Yeah, that's, so I want to go through uh, probably a philosophical question because I'm I'm as well a writer. And actually, I come from poetry, so. When you look at humanity, and I think I know that you are a philosopher in a lot of ways, so we have two versions of humanity, okay? There are two kind of variations, the, the light side and the dark side. And if you look, for instance, at quotes from uh, Stanley Kubrick that created one of the most interesting films in reflecting AI, it was precisely about that uh, how he can, uh, well, tries to kill his, his owner because he gets afraid. So in, in the evolution of humanity, normally the ones that survived, and if you look at evolutionary um, uh, basis, is normally the ones that adapt faster and that are able somehow to dominate. And sometimes they dominate for, because of based on good ideas or good philosophies, or sometimes purely based on force or actually on uh, more violent stuff. So how do you see that part? Because I think it's one of the things that I have uh, well, seen I can't, regarding the light and the dark side, uh, let me share a brief anecdote from my time. Uh, I lived in Washington, D.C. for nine years and did AI consulting for a bunch of government agencies. I mean, including medical ones like NIH and CDC, but also some uh, intelligence agencies. And a good friend of mine, he ran a software company that did, that did consulting for many U.S. intelligence agencies. And he, he, he had a shaved head and a goatee and wore a black trench coat. He looked like a dark overlord to me. <laughs> but his, his second in command, the VP of his company, looked like Superman. I mean, he wore a nice, nice, nicely cut, expensive suit, and his jaw was just very, very square. So I, I kept saying to my friend, like, you, you look like Darth Vader or something. Like, you, you look like a over, dark overlord. How can you have... Superman, who's a force of good, working as your second in command. And so my friend just said, well, Ben, you, you obviously haven't been in DC long enough. You, you haven't understood the nature of the relationship between good and evil. So I'm like, well, what, what, what is it? What is the relationship between good and evil? I said, well, in, here in Washington, the relation between good and evil is a mutually rewarding business relationship. So, <laughs> so I, I think uh, that's uh, certainly a sociological observation about uh, DC and big governments in general. But if you if you look at the evolution of humanity, you could see it in, in in a related way, right? Like we we evolved from two competing forces. One is individual selection, which is our DNA wanted the DNA of the individual to keep propagating. And, you know, we're still doing that. I, I, I have uh, 
four kids and one grandchild now, I'm, I'm propagating my DNA. I'm being a good individual. Right? On the other hand, there's also something called group selection in biology, where the DNA of the tribe evolves and intermixes in a way that will cause the, the propagation of, of, of the tribe, right? And these are quite different in implications because group selection militates toward organisms that will help the whole tribe. So there's a certain amount of altruism there. And that can also happen on multiple levels where the tribe looks, looks bigger and bigger. Uh, uh, but that's, of course, stronger effect with a smaller tribe, right? And so we have, you know, we have some aspects of our DNA that are oriented toward individual selection, some that are oriented toward group selection. So if you look at an ant colony, there's a lot of group selection there. Very often the ant will sacrifice itself for the good of the colony, right? And if, if, if you look at, say, uh, a tiger or a lion or something, there's a lot of individual selection there. And there, there's not, there's not as, as, as much group selection in, in, in these types of animals. So I think we have that contradiction in ourselves. Evolution hasn't fully balanced these out. It remains an awkward balance. And it, this ends up being part of what we look at as, as dark versus light. I mean, there's some, of course, there, there are psychopaths in the world. There's some people who are sadists and just want to hurt others because they're, they're twisted by things in their childhood. But a lot of what we see as dark versus light is just, you know, we want to maximize our individual success and that of our progenitors. And we also have some level of altruistic streak where we want to maximize the good of our tribe. And that holds for various levels of how big the circle of the tribe is, right? Like we, we care more about our friends and neighbors than about people halfway around the world, but we care somewhat about people living halfway around the world, especially if they're right in front of us and, and we see them, which triggers the idea that maybe they're, they're part of our tribe. So we, we have these contradictions baked into our DNA and this is one of the things that makes it fascinating to think about passing human ethics and, and morals and human culture along to AIs. Because it's not like we have a consistent, coherent set of, of ethics that, that, that we follow in our lives. We are all bundles of contradictions, right? And I mean, the, the process of living our lives is an endless and never to be completed process of partially resolving these contradictions step, step, step by step. So if we pass this along to the AI, what are we passing along? We're passing along a bundle of contradictions that's not entirely coherent. And the AI not being exactly human, it's gonna undergo the process of you know, iteratively partially resolving these contradictions, not quite the same way that, that, that a human would, right? And I'm not sure there's not a solution to that, right? I mean, because if you try to make an exact, coherent, logically consistent ethics and morality, 
maybe you can do that, but then that's not humanity, right? That, 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 that's not actually what humans are or what, or what humans, humans are, are following. And I don't, you know, that the level of our policymaking and public discourse is generally so incredibly low that, that grappling with ideas, even like the ones I just described, let alone the much subtler ideas you encounter and actually building your teaching in the AI, that's, that, 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 that's way beyond what you know, governments or large corporations are gonna be dealing with in their, in, in, in their policy dictates, which, which basically means the evolution of superhuman AI is going to happen sort of off to the side of the policies that governments and, and, and corporations come up with regarding uh, you no know, ethical gu gu guidance of, of, of AI, right? And that's, uh, yeah, it, it's very subtle, but yet, yet, I mean, subtle, complex, and contradictory doesn't, that doesn't have to lead to absolute nihilism, right? I mean, still, like as an AI developer, I have a choice. Do I work on AI for teaching kids? Do I work on AI for curing diseases? You know, do, 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 do I work on, on AI for giving, giving psychotherapy? Or do, I, or do I work on AI for, say, making guided missiles better identify who 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 to, who to blow up or who to who to you know psych into clicking over and over on ads to buy useless junk to get delivered to their house right so then even though we don't have an entirely consistent human morality still i mean on an intuitive basis which is what we have i mean we we can we can guide the ais that we're creating in a in a direction that appears loving, compassionate, and beneficial, and appears to be driven, you know, at least by a healthy balance of the uh, individualistic and, and collectivist aspects of, of humanity, or we can drive AI in a, in a, in a manner that, that's much more narrowly driven, like by the profit motive of a given company, or, or purely by the desire to advocate one tribe to the complete exclusion of the of, of the broader tribe so i mean i think uh, it's tough and tangled up and complicated but you know we're building ai and we're rolling it out anyway so we, we can't just throw up our hands and say humanity's a mess it's ill-defined you know let's just seek for our own good and, and the big picture is too big to think about i think we we can we can guide the big picture and you know now more than any other time in history is a time when each of us as an individual i mean this is a critical point each of us as an individual potentially could have a humongous impact on the outcome for our species and the outcome for the the engineered species that that we create, which may go way beyond what humans can do. Yeah, I think you touch a critical element. And I, I, on that level, I think all your work is always focused on 
as well creating a narrative for AI, which I think is very important because most of the AI researchers and most of the thinkers have much more a scientific approach towards AI and you have a philosophical approach towards AI, which I think is critical both in your work as a thinker and as a doer. So one of the things that I'm particularly, um, well, I, I respect that a lot and I'm a huge fan of the work you've been doing is how you dismantle the narrative because a lot of the history of mankind and the evolution is about narratives and about storytelling, the Christian, the Muslim, and all these big narratives. So it is, but as a poet, then you should realize that uh, we need to get beyond narratives. I mean, the narratives, yes, I'm with you. I mean, no, but, but at the same time, we need the point if you look at the 20th century, and that's a good point. The 20th century was the meltdown of narratives. But at yeah, the same time, yeah. we created two world wars and we got to this nihilist that you touch as well. So how do you create this benevolent uh, AI that you yeah. are building and you are one of the, the leading personalities, but as well, can we do that? That can touch the rest of the world because the problem is Think the world right now is the chaos in a lot of ways, or psychological. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very weird and subtle point. And because the, the, the thing, The nature of narrative has occurred to me very often in applying AI to molecular biology, because when you, when you apply AI to biological data, like to the 25,000 plus genes in the human genome and all the non-coding DNA, I mean, what you get is this vast cross-connected network where all these thousands of genes impact these tens of thousands of molecules. And you see that what human biologists have been trying to do is they're trying to find a story. They like want one gene to be the protagonist. And then you have this one process which, which leads to aging or cancer or something. And in reality, like there's no protagonist, there's no narrative. There's this network with tens of thousands of, of genes and, and millions of, of, of chemical compounds. And they're interacting in this complex network of ways that doesn't boil down to a few actors with a simple sequence of, of events like there's there's no beginning middle and end there's no three act structure right i mean it's it's not there but biologists want it to be there and the people funding grant proposals want it to be there and venture capitalists hearing pitches from biotech startups want it to be there but in molecular biology which has its own reality apart from human stories right is is not it's actually not there. And you know, the, the same holds true in sociology and, and, and economics. The reality is also more of a complex self-organizing network than a narrative. But in molecular biology, it's harder to avoid the reality, right? Because it's coming out, out of your lab instruments. And in social science, people place their interpretation on reality to, avo to avoid seeing the reality uh, more, more more commonly but yet the thing is even though in a way the narrative isn't there <clears throat> if you want to get things done in human society you yes. have to think in those terms and yet in some ways the traditional concept of narrative is being reconstructed right like uh, if you look at like 
TikTok video app or something. Everything's boiled down to 15 to 60 second videos. You're not telling a narrative in quite the conventional sense, but then of course there are stars on there and for each star you have the series of 15 second videos that they emanate and you are following the story of that star, right? I mean, Donald Trump cannot tell a story, but yet he is, you know, he, he is driving a fictional narrative in, in, exactly. in, 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 in the minds of my minds of a lot of the people who are, who, who are, who are paying attention to him. Right. So yeah, we're, we're clearly in like a post postmodernist yes era, right where i mean narrative has been transcended story and meaning have been transcended yet people are then using all these postmodernist tools to just create in a way meta narratives on 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 top of that that that, that are driving the uh, the reptile reptile and mammal parts of the of the brains of all these all, 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 all the people who are controlling allocation of, of resources, right? So it's, it's very subtle. And I think ultimately it's a game AI will be able to play better than people. And you look very recently, there's been an AI meme generator going around on, on the internet where you see that, that AI is able to generate funnier memes than, than people just by putting goofball captions on, on, on images, right? And so that's, that's, I think, a hint of what's to come. Where in this like post postmodernist world of uh, messaging, I mean, we're going to see AIs are able to to master the art of of pulling people's strings better than than people can, right? And I mean, of course, Google AdSense is the best example of that, but it's behind the scenes, right? Where it's an AI meme generator. Is is right in front of you, and you can see you can see the same sort of, of of process going on. And this again, this brings you back to you know who controls the AI because if if AI is better able to direct people's minds than people are, right? Then in the stage before the aid before the AI is a full on AGI, like before the AI is deciding what direction to nudge people's minds in, well, who's deciding what direction the AI nudges, nudges people's minds in, right? And that, that again, you'd, you'd be happier if it's a sort of democratic participatory open system of, of people and machines working together than a centralized system. So in that, another point about narratives, which comes out of cognitive science and has played a role and I work with OpenCog. I mean, another point is, I mean, it, it's it's well known that free will is mostly an illusion, right? I mean, I mean, setting aside the, there may be some ontological basic notion of of freedom or or choice in a, in a philosophical sense, but in terms of the the stories that people tell ourselves regarding why they freely chose to do this or that thing these stories are almost all bullshit that, that, that are made up by the brain right and i mean there's there are very clear biology ex experiments showing that if, if anyone's not familiar look up like michael gazzaniga's split brain experiments and, 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 or 
Benjamin uh, Libet's experiment. So it's well known that the reasons why our brain does something are not the same as the stories that, that we tell ourselves, why our brain did something. And there's many laboratory experiments set up to, to demonstrate this. Now, nevertheless, the stories that we make up as to why we did something seem to often be useful, right? So you, you come to the conclusion that, you know, Friedrich Nietzsche said consciousness is like the army commander who retroactively takes responsibility for what his troops did, right? So the, the conclusion you come to looking at cognitive science is that's true, but the story the army commander made up for why the troops did when broadcast to the troops is useful for guiding the troops in their ongoing self-organizing activity. So the bullshit narratives we make up explaining what happened, they may not be accurate, but these narratives get infused back into the self-organizing processes that do something, and then they guide things to happen, happen better next time. And the process of making up a narrative is in, in many ways, it's a symbolic AI process. So we get here into the combination of symbolic AI with, with neural AI, which is one of the integrations of multiple AI paradigms. It happens in OpenCog and, and, and SingularityNet. And yeah, what we're seeing now is AI is playing a role not only in the actual decision-making, but in the making up of stories about the decision-making and, and, and that feedback between story making and actual decision is gonna also involves a feedback between humans doing story making and actual decision versus AIs doing story making and an actual decision. And it's that it's that feedback that is is ultimately driving us on toward toward AGI and 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 singularity, right? And that's uh, again that and that's playing itself out across many different vertical areas in, in, in different ways, right? Like in, in molecular biology, it's playing it out, but the AI is analyzing the data, but the AI is also coming up with hypotheses. And, that, and that's really narrative making, right? And, and I mean, and in, say, we've been doing some work on uh, applying AI to help combat the COVID-19 uh, crisis, partly because well, I've been doing a lot of work applying AI to molecular biology with a goal toward life extension, right? So we had a spinoff of SingularityNet called Rejuve, aimed at rejuvenation, life extension. How, how can we use AI to help people who want to live a long time live longer and longer? So that's some stuff about that at rejuve.io website. But with, with COVID-19, sweeping the globe we're like well how can we how can we use what we've been doing with life extension as a goal how can we use that to help with COVID-19 right because of course if you die of COVID you're not you're not going to live forever right so that, that's still I mean that's it, it, not gonna solving COVID doesn't solve mortality but it, it's certainly a useful useful subcase so there there you know, we're looking at some fine-grained applications where we're looking at just chopping some clinical trials with precision medicines. Like how can you, if someone's doing a clinical trial of a COVID-19 related therapy, 
can you look in and sort of slice and dice which people the this medicine will work well for and which people won't it work well for so you can customize which medicines for which people but we're also looking at ai for hypothesis making like can you come up with a a new idea for what kind of drug might might help or or looking at some traditional chinese medicines could it be a combination of herbs and, and, and drugs that, that, that helps prevent covid in, in some people and then we're also we're also looking at agent-based modeling. So can you use simulation models to better model what happens in a, in a whole society so that you can judge, better estimate the likely impact of different policies against, against COVID-19. And there, in all these things, you have this interesting dialectic between the highly detailed data analytics work and the storytelling aspect of it because you, you need i mean uh, a biological hypothesis has to be something that makes sense to the human biologists we're going to help design experiments yeah. based on it and if the ai helps you come up with a more intelligent policy for managing people's movements and distancing and travel during covid 19 spread I mean, one thing it's coming up with an optimal set of rules people should follow to maximize, you know, personal well-being and economic benefit and minimize virus spread. Another thing is coming up with a set of rules that make sense to people and you're able, you're able to, to communicate to them, right? So, I mean, all, all these issues that we're talking about with the narrative and its relation to AI, these come up in one vertical market after another in 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 different ways and there these are things society should be thinking about a, 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 a lot more but uh, we, we seem to be overall most of society's resources seem to be stuck at a, a more uh, a more primitive level somehow yeah, and that is a very good point. So I, I would like to, and we passed one hour, but I still would like to be it until you have time. So two, two, two areas that I would like to touch. So one, and I think it's very important to go from the theory to the practice. So you are both a philosopher, a, a code maker, an engineer, and a scientist, but as well a, an extreme mindful of a lot of different things. And as well a person that is focused on the benevolence. So how do you apply that as being as well CEO of quite big organizations worldwide, because I think it's very important for people that are listening to us, which are a lot of people that are struggling with their families, with their life balance, with as well their more research, and of course the ones that are more in AI, but how do you manage that on your personal balance, being a father of four children, as well a grandfather, and as well a, a CEO of big corporations worldwide, or corporations or organizations, let's put it in a good way, yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, how to balance all the different things uh, in in my personal life it has been uh, an ongoing ad adventure to which I, I have had had no no systematic answer. But I, I think, as with many things in, in human life, I, I think the the state of consciousness that you that you bring to it is 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 the key thing because the if you're involved in a field where things are changing as rapidly as they are in, in, in AI and in the tech business world, like the, 
there is going to be no one answer to any question, be it a scientific or or technological or a personal life question. There's not likely to be a fixed answer that, that holds in practice for a long time. I, I think I remember about 15 years ago, I realized I was having this sort of mental problem wherein no matter what I was doing, I was just beating myself up for not doing something else. Like I'm playing with my kids. I'm like, I should be working. I'm working. I'm like, I should be playing with my kids. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. What, why are you doing this? Like just, uh, you know, narrative as well. Duh, like just make, make the most of what you're doing at that moment. I mean, take a little time to reflect on how much time you want to spend on what, make your best decision and, and then, then just do it. And I, I think I've, I've managed to, to do that that reasonably well. So I mean, at, at least uh, I mean when I'm working, I'm fully in that. If I'm if I'm with my family, I'm 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 fully in that. And I, I think if if you if you manage to maintain a certain mental balance through the various ups and downs of both personal and and professional life, then so far, I found you can, you can manage the, the work-life integration okay, but it's, 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 an, it's an ongoing challenge. And I, I don't, my life has been too crazy to think of it as, as work-life balance, which is where I, I grab from somewhere the, the work-life integration term instead. Because, I mean, if, you know, I had the, 2017, I was spending almost all year just flying around, spreading the word about singularity net. And then on flights here and there, or late at night in hotel rooms, I was doing a bunch of math theory and, and, and AI work. And it, it worked better than it should have. But then we did the ICO for singularity net, the, the initial fundraising event to let us scale up the project in December 2017, then we had a baby in in uh, January 2018, right? And that's it. So then I was like, well, now I'm going to stay home and do, you know, more technical and, and writing work. I'm not going to stop traveling all over like crazy. That That lasted like five months. And then my wife and I were traveling all over like crazy with the baby for a year and a half. He was in, I think... By age two, he'd been in 28 different countries or something. <laughs> it's impressive. Yeah, so, it's is, it is, is madness. And my, my wife, obviously, who also has an AI PhD, was, was very tolerant. Now, now, now I've been in one place for a couple months, which is almost, almost unprecedented. Just, uh, it's too hard to travel anywhere. You get, you get, locked, yes. you get locked up in, 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 in quarantine, right? And uh, I, I guess... Uh, as with many people, it's an open question. Uh, what will be the long-term Im Im impact impact of this? Like, am I am I get am I going to get used to staying at home and getting more hands-on research work done, or as soon as the travel restrictions are lifted, is it going to be like, <laughs> wow, I can I can get the hell out of here again, right? <laughs> so, 
And, no, uh, no, I understand. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I have uh, two questions. I know that you have probably like 15 minutes more or less, but I'll try yeah. to be that. So one thing that I would like to touch, and I think you are probably one of the few AI, um, world-recognized AI scientists and as well entrepreneur that has been touching all the areas of blockchain, from an ICO that you just mentioned, from as well working with Vitalik in terms of trying to create more awareness in the blockchain world. Sure. And as well, you are, you are using blockchain in the right way, which is kind of something that most of people are still trying to, try to struggle to find the balance between crypto, the blockchain parts and things like that. So what would be your balance between AI and blockchain? Because these are two technologies, very powerful, especially you've been working on Kong and right now, for instance, Chinese government launched the BCN initiative yeah. that is going for 200 cities and probably around the world which is quite innovative and very centralized, which is partly different from a lot of the visions. So how do you see, first of all, your work in blockchain world, but as well, this kind of 360 areas between blockchain and AI, which are two of the probably most uh, radical technologies of our times and as well, ideologies as well. I think AI is the most fundamental technology that humanity will create because AI is, is is going to lead to the transcendence of of humanity itself and the creation of you know more intelligent and capable minds and ultimately the fusion of those humans who want to with these superhuman minds right so that's that's of a profound importance that not a lot of things can touch right and i, I think blockchain is a very powerful technology in the same sense that say computer networking is a very powerful technology. I mean, blockchain is a key methodology for coordinating, you know, a distributed network of computing systems without requiring a central controller. And I mean, that's valuable for financial systems. It can be valuable for medical information systems. It can be valuable in, internet of things or for AI as we're doing in, 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 in singularity net for data management as ocean protocol is doing. So it, it, it is a, it's a highly valuable technology, but certainly not as fundamental as, as artificial intelligence. But I think that blockchain has the potential to play a critical role in the evolution of, of artificial intelligence via you know enabling the rollout of global AI networks that don't have a central controller, right? And you know, blockchain, the first applications were in finance with Bitcoin and so forth. But in finance you have you have a lot of regulatory issues which are, are gonna make it there there there'll be an obstacle for for decentralization to really take hold in terms of uh, blockchain-based finance applications, because there's a lot of rules regarding uh, financial transactions in attempts to stomp out money laundering and so forth and tax avoidance, and the governments want to keep track of financial transactions. And that's, uh, that's a challenge. So, I mean, you can use blockchain in a lot of different ways, right? So the Chinese government will build blockchains that help them to keep better control 
over their country than they would have otherwise. They'll build a blockchain that lets the central government monitor everyone's transactions more easily than would be the case with, without a blockchain. Because the central government can use blockchain to stomp out corruption at all the lower levels of government, which the central government may like very well, but obviously doesn't prevent corruption in the guys who are at the center, right? So, I mean, I think there, there will be no technical obstacle to a purely decentralized payment network obsoleting global currencies. On the other hand, just as Facebook Libra was sort of stomped on by global regulators, uh, a global cryptocurrency that was efficient, scalable, and decentralized, rather than having Facebook behind it, would will have some struggles with global regulators also, right? Now, AI is a bit more interesting, right? Because you don't have that whole global regulatory infrastructure, and it's a little slipperier by nature, right? So it's 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 harder to regulate AI than, than money because AI takes many, many different forms. So it, it might be that while payment is where blockchain got its start, it might be that other applications where centralization is not as strongly enforced by regulation, it might be that in, in other areas, blockchain is able to achieve its sort of anarcho-libertarian decentralization goals better but i mean just for regulatory reasons not not not, not for not for technical reasons so that's a, and i would say blockchain is also very young technology right like ai ai is young in the sense that we don't have agi yet but there's a very rich wealth of prototypes and ideas going back since before i was born that are now being matured and, and brought into practice blockchain we're still much closer to the inception so for for example i've been working with tufi saliba on his toda protocol to some extent and i mean toda they don't have yet an open decentralized version rolled out but they have the core algorithms there for you know, a decentralized, efficient blockchain without a distributed ledger. So that's, for those who know the software underlying Bitcoin and Ethereum, that would be a completely radical and revolutionary thing, right? So I think there are still fairly basic advances that can be made in the infrastructure of, of blockchain because it's still a fairly, a fairly young, young technology. And so that, 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 that should be a, should be very vibrant next five years in terms of blockchain technology development and i mean what that means in terms of the economics of the crypto world i i have i have no idea right the yeah. whole thing with bitcoin price speculation and altcoins and cryptocurrencies i mean that's uh, been quite crazy and in a way off to the side of the ongoing technology development within within the blockchain space yeah, completely. so last question and the cautious of your time and thank you so much for your for your input so 
I, you touched COVID-19 and um, I know that you're doing a massive amount of research, a massive amount of products and, and a lot of research. So what would be the message of hope that you have for people listening to us? Because I think it's about messaging as well and about doing things. Uh, I know that you are as well a very positive person. You always look at the positive things. So bearing in mind that there's a lot of right now anxiety towards of course everything that is happening and of course we are humans we need to adapt towards what is happening what would be your message of hope and especially for people that want to know more about singularity open cog and other projects you're doing how can they collaborate and help and, and even just get yeah assistance? so regarding COVID 19 uh, i mean clearly it's a bad situation. It was foreseen by many people who were warning about the pandemic and the damage it would wreak for a long time. And the world wasn't, wasn't paying, paying much attention because we're more concerned with the, whatever we see right in front of our, of our faces at, at any given moment. Right. So, I mean, clearly there will be a vaccine within the next, say, 12 to 24 months and there will be various therapies rolling out before that so covid will be defeated there will be a, a death toll along the way which is which is is terrible i think for for those who want to help the fight against covid i mean for those who are software developers we'd organized a hackathon called the covidathon uh, hackathon which uh, is is running now and uh, is for uh, two months. We're, we're halfway through it. So if you look at COVIDathon, it's on DevPost. You can find by singularitynet.io site. So that's that's what one way that 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 people can help. But I I do think you know for for those who don't have uh, toddlers at home like I do, the there's social isolation and uh, stay-at-home orders many people are under can be a time to learn learn, learn new skills and, and get all sorts of, of, of beneficial work done i think you know as well as staying safe and helping however you can now i think that the crisis we're seeing with with covid now i hope can wake people's minds up a little bit to the the fragility of, of everything that we we take for granted, both in terms of our biological health and the routines of everyday life and, and society and, and, and economy. Because, you know, as bad as the COVID pandemic is, it could be a lot, lot worse, right? Like imagine, imagine something that, you know, spread as badly as COVID or had a 60% fatality rate instead of 1% or whatever COVID is now estimated to be. Or imagine something like COVID that differentially killed children rather than, than old people. Yeah. What would the reaction be to that, right? So then ask yourself five years from now, could somebody genetically engineer a virus with, the, with, those, with those capabilities, right? Or could that be coordinated with a computer virus that took down the global power networks or something, right? So there, there, there's, there's a lot of uh, risk for global crises that we're not thinking of, just as we weren't thinking of pandemics very much. And just as there was a lot of literature warning on pandemics, there's a lot of people warning on all these other global crises that could happen. 
and they're correct and they're thoughtful and nobody is paying attention. And we could have had much better systems for coping with this pandemic. We could now be building much better systems for coping with the next pandemic. And the other key point is, you know, apart from a whole bunch of people dying, what will the outcome of this pandemic be? Well, a lot of uh, people in the service economy, a lot of working class people will be put out of work and won't get hired back because businesses will reorganize in a way that doesn't need their jobs anymore. On the other hand, a number of very well capitalized funds are buying up stuff at a very low price now, and they'll be making a lot of money once the economy bounces back. You know, in, in Hong Kong, China, Chinese government is taking the opportunity of uh, COVID calming down the protests to arrest many, many leaders in, in, in the protest movement and, and funders of, of, of the protest movement, right? I mean, so we're, what you're seeing is a global crisis, A, is something we're very badly prepared for because as a society, we're too stupid to prepare in advance, even for things that we know rationally have a high probability of coming. And B, a global crisis is an opportunity for increased concentration of wealth and increased concentration of, of power. Because when things are bad, whoever has more money or more power can take advantage of it to get even more. Whoever has less money and power is, 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 is struggling, right? And I mean, I feel, I feel very fortunate. Like, I'm not extremely rich or powerful or anything, but I'm, I'm, I'm in a position where, like, I'm... I'm not. I'm not going to starve due to a uh, six months of, of of problem or something, right? So I mean, and I know many many people in the world are 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 not are not in that in that position. On the other hand, I'm not in a position where I can buy a billion dollar company for a hundred million dollars because the economy is bad, and a lot of funds are in that position. So if I mean if. If you have a concern about what's happening with COVID, certainly stay healthy and do what you can to help fight the virus. On the other hand, also try to keep that concern in your mind after this pandemic is, is beaten and you can go back out to the bar and, and party again and the stock market is booming again. Try to keep in your mind that, you know, in three or five years or whatever it is, there's gonna be another crisis. It may be a little different in character. It may be even worse. We want to have AI systems in place that are controlled and guided in a decentralized way when that next crisis comes. Otherwise, that will be an even bigger opportunity for the institutions holding the majority of wealth and power to accumulate more and more wealth and power. And ultimately, you know, th this has to do with who controls the singularity, with who, who controls the 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 AGI that that first emerges with with greater than human capability, which controls the fate of all of us, our children, grandchildren, and so on. Yeah, that's a very good. Well, that's that's probably ten questions out of that, but I'll let you. Yeah, let you go. yeah, I gotta go. <laughs> no worries. It's a fantastic. I want to thank you. I have a lot of insights here. We're going to put links to all your bios and websites and different projects. Um, this is a series of a lot of interviews we're doing with world leaders and uh, I want to thank Iwood I as well for you involved in a lot of different things we're doing, but I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me.